Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 6th of September. This is our 100... Did you know this is our 196th episode, Tammy? What? Yeah, I know. We're almost at 200. Oh, my God. It's like a lot. I was just describing this podcast to somebody yesterday, and I was like, three and a half years. So bizarre. It's really been three and a half years? Mm-hmm. Wasn't it? It was April 2020. Not wild. Wow. Well... I don't know. We keep plugging on. <laughs> if you'd like going. to support us, you can subscribe via Substack or Patreon for $5 a month. It's goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsgpod. You get access to our Discord server. A lot of occasional bonus episodes, but mostly you're just helping us keep doing what we're doing. Um, you know, run events and stuff like that. These are the types of things that we do. Yes. Okay. Upcoming in the Bay with you. Yeah, I got to figure out exactly what day it is. But now that my travel great. schedule has kind of settled down a little bit, I think I can do it. Yeah. Um, I'm in this space where any travel anywhere feels like such an imposition that I almost feel like I need a mental break. If, you <laughs> if mean I, because not just because you have kids, but just because you hate traveling? <laughs> yeah, both. Um, the kids don't help, but yeah. Yeah. Any type of, like if I'm on a plane, it just feels like I've done so much work and I don't know why it is like that because I used to travel all the I know, time, I used to. Yeah. but it just is brutal. And it's, it's really not, taxing. I feel it on my body a lot these days. Have you noticed that airports are just kind of gross now? Like, I don't know if they're always this way. <laughs> I, but yeah, I'm not. I you think have, like with the pandemic, I don't know. I used to have a system. I would just go sit at another gate. You know, and wait. Yeah, that's often what I do. And I just kind of read or something like that. It uh-huh. wasn't that bad. And now it's like every gate is just slammed. It's, yeah. And then for some of these airlines, I have enough credit uh, built up over the years of traveling where I oh, can go, go in the, the lounges. Lounge. I've but never the been in one of those. Worse. They're even really? worse. Yeah, because it's huh. the same thing. They're overcrowded and so many gross. People. Yeah. But everyone is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so it's even more extra <laughs> yeah, yeah. like it's okay if the lounges are you know the lounges are ne- are all business travelers and um generally when they're empty it's totally fine it is comfortable yeah. and you can get like a cookie or something you just sit there or like you know some i don't know you get like a little croissant with egg on top of it and you know it's all free and everything like that so it's all right but now they're even worse so yeah traveling not my thing anymore. But I, do you, uh, you're doing, I mean, because you have a car and you're on in a great part of the West Coast, you do long t- car travel, right? And is that fine? No, I just, I try not leave. Even that. Two, well, I know. Two you mile radius. Leave. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that where's, the clear, tennis, but... <laughs> where's the tennis court? <laughs> That's about it. Well, because yeah, I'm been... like, I'm on, um, I'm in BC, Washington and Oregon reporting for three weeks and I'm driving a ton. Like I'm tra- driving between the Vancouver area, almost down to the California border of Oregon. Oh, wow. Where are you going it's a there? different kind of taxing. Like my, you know, your back hurts, your leg yeah. hurts from the pedal. Yeah. So I don't know. I didn't never like driving for reporting either, just because it was like it takes so long. It's really intense, but, but the uh, like you can listen. You know, the podcasts are great, whatever, whatever. Yeah, but it definitely gets lonely, and I get really sleepy, and I have to pull over and sleep on the side of the road. Oh wow, yeah, that is yeah. intense. Okay, well today we're going to anyway. talk about a podcast in a little bit. Here, um, Tammy wanted me to listen to this podcast, which I actually was very mm-hmm. happy that we listened to. But we're gonna 
continue our energy from the last couple of weeks and try and do more topics a little bit faster, right? And so the first <laughs> one I wanted to talk to you about, this was my idea. Did you see Mitch McConnell's latest brain oh, freeze? Man. Yes, yes. So yes, for those who don't know, Mitch McConnell on two, everyone I'm sure knows this, on two occasions now has had these moments where he, I don't want to make light of it because I, I actually think it's quite, like I, I get the jokes and I think, you know, that I'm not a fan of Mitch McConnell and I think that some of the jokes mm -hmm. are funny. So I don't mean it as a joke, but he really does look like he's seen a ghost almost, right? Like that, like Freezes something has up. haunted him mm -hmm. because he just shuts down and he kind of stares blankly and he looks, there's almost a look of terror on his face every single time. And I don't think it is terror, but that's what it communicates itself as, right? And each time uh, he sort of whisk away by an aide and yeah. then his people say, oh, he's fine. You know, he's fine. But he's right. clearly not fine, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. What do you think about all this? Yeah, I. so really weirdly this week, I saw the aftermath of someone's seizure. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's this thing called post-dictal, post-dictal, which is, and they looked exactly like this. And oh, I'd wow. never seen this in my life before, but this person had no idea where they were. They couldn't speak. They couldn't take instructions. Their brain was like rebooting. It was the strangest thing I've ever seen. That's and terrifying. It was terrifying. And I thought McConnell the first time it happened, I thought that was a stroke. Mm, me too. Um, but yeah. then I read an article in the Times saying that because it looks exactly the same both times, it's probably one of these seizures where your body actually doesn't shake. Mm. Um, it's, but yeah, the, the one I witnessed this week was so terrifying. The person ended up being fine. But um, yeah, a thing, a thing I wanted to ask you that I was sort of wondering about is so I've seen these sorts of kind of like almost defenses of McConnell where it's like seizures they're a thing that happened to people and we shouldn't you know think that they're debilitating you can still be a normal person and have them but I think this is such a different situation than a kind of fetterman let's reclaim mental health let's talk about our bodies as these areas you know right. like debility like yeah I get it but I really think with McConnell he's just so not competent to be doing this job and I don't. You feel that way, okay? I definitely. You do. feel I mean, it because you of not... these, these. Have they come out and said that there are these seizures? No. So yeah. this is like doctors opining about because okay, because you know... it seems like their answer, and this is the part that does annoy me about it, is just like yeah. there's nothing to see here. I know. You know, where like, I'm just like, no, there's something to see. Come on. Yeah, I mean, come like, on. You know, we've been watching this guy talk for 30 years now, right? And like, <laughs> like if this had happened the whole time, it would be one thing, you know? It, it's kind of like Biden and the stuttering, you know? Did you know there's like this whole right-wing <laughs> conspiracy that like the whole stuttering thing is made up, right? And that, um, and they're- Oh, and that he's like, just not competent? Yeah, that he's just like having oh, wow. senior moments and that they brought up the stuttering thing as a, as a cover. And they well, Wasn't the he doing that when he was young? <laughs> Well, I don't think so, you know, and so their argument oh. is basically like, oh, we've heard this guy speak for 50, 60 years now. And suddenly you're just telling us that he's stuttering when it seems like he's, you know, in some ways I getting old. Um, I don't believe that conspiracy theory, by the way. But I will say that, like, we have this moment now where it's like, all right. Diane Feinstein, Mitch McConnell, yeah, Fetterman. Right. We have like these people where the question is whether or not they are fit to serve anymore. And for some point, it does feel to be 
somewhat partisan at some point, right? Like uh, the way in which people talk about it, at least in terms of like, let's I say guess Fetterman. So. Fetterman I guess so. Well, to, like, yeah, Mitch I was McConnell. just saying, I think Fetterman is slightly different. <laughs> um, right, right, right. But I think right. Feinstein and McConnell are exactly the same. Okay, so I my question to you, and this is why I wanted to talk about it, is that like this thing actually kind of makes me uncomfortable in some ways because I agree that there probably is an age where people start to decline Mm -hmm. and that it makes it seem like the job of being a senator might be beyond their capacity, right? And yet we have a very long history of people who have done this. Strom Thurmond, Jesse Helms, like all these- Terrible examples, all all of them. (laughs) No, but I'm just saying that that this is not new, right? Like people get elected until they drop dead. Um, And that there's something about the way in which like the Feinstein thing was discussed and now the McConnell thing that is discussed that I do, it does make me feel like it is a little bit ageist, you know, like I feel, and that's not a word that we hear very much because, you know, age is accepted as being a biological reality and people decline at some level. But I do think that this type of discourse is making it difficult for somebody like Barbara Lee to get any type of foothold because Barbara Lee is in her 70s and everybody, the first thing everyone says is just like, oh, she's just going to be Diane Feinstein again. And she's like, well, what is the evidence of that? You know, like she could, I, she yeah. could spend 20 years and be totally sharp. Some right. of these people who are in their 30s in the Senate have like an <laughs> IQ of 65. <laughs> They're some of the most non-functional, stupid people in the world, you know? And like, <laughs> like um, now, like, is that the same? No, it's not the same. But my point is just that trying to encapsulate and trying to like put mental capacity tied to age, mm-hmm. like it does seem in some ways to be unfair and I do think that once you do it in a way because you feel like it's okay that it, because it's partisan, right? Like, like it's Mitch McConnell who cares about me. You don't have to defend Mitch McConnell, right? Or even for people on the left, it's like Dianne Feinstein is sort of like this monster of California, right? And that um, like it's okay to get really mad at Dianne Feinstein about this type of stuff. But I don't know. Like for me, it's just like, do we really want to set that standard where it's like once you're 70, you can't you know, you're just toast. No, I don't, I don't think we're being ageist with Feinstein and McConnell. I think there is like a demonstrable (laughs) lack of capacity in just like doing basic daily functions, like communicating with the public, communicating with their staff. Feinstein is basically having people like do the yay nays for her, which is just, I mean, it's really grim. And, um, you know, and I think like, yeah, look at Barbara Lee, look at Nancy Pelosi. I'm not necessarily a Pelosi fan, but she is 83. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi like, is more she, full of life and like mentally us. sharp than we are by I know. far. Like so it's not I, even close. Exactly. Like I saw. <laughs> she gets I think the I fights where I'm just saw, like, I'm too old to get in this. I know. Fight. I How saw her speak this? live recently, and I was like, I don't necessarily think you're the greatest, you know, policy wise, but oh my god, energy level is crazy. Yeah, it was riveting. Right, 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 right. So yeah. I don't, you know, I I don't think we're being ageist. I think like. Even if you just look at the times around the what seemed to be the seizures McConnell has had, just the basic Q and Aing was so strange and it not, was strange. He couldn't really hear. I mean, I, again, I'm not I'm not trying to discriminate against people who are deaf. Like, he just isn't there. Yeah, yeah. I so you don't think that there's any sort of risk here in saying, all right, well, McConnell and Feinstein are both old, and they're clearly by my naked eye and judgment they're gone but nancy pelosi is not and john fetterman 
it's a different situation. Like you feel like there's a way to take it case by case and not set so. some sort of like weird. I don't. I don't want to make like a slippery slope argument. I know but I'm what you mean. A slippery slope argument. Well, and it's also. I mean, my parents are in their mid seventies. Right. You know, I mean, I'm around a lot of older people and they're really with it. And I, I don't think, yeah, I think maybe what you're cautioning is like, when we talk about these sorts of people, maybe we shouldn't be like, Feinstein, she's just too old to live like that. You know? Right. But that's the way it's discussed, right? Maybe we need to be more careful about our language. Like to me, it's like McConnell, Feinstein, they can't communicate. Right. They don't right. seem to be lucid. I mean, so I don't think they should be running our country. It's, mm. But what about the argument that all these senators are just run by their aides anyway? Anyway, right, and that um, that they're almost like name brands more than anything, right? I mean, that points to deeper and grimmer problems with our system. <laughs> but I, I only think that's true up to a point. Okay, I really, I mean, I do think that you know politicians who have any kind of ideology, even if I don't like it, like are supposed to be doing some decision making. I don't know. I might be, you know, someone told me at some point and it was, they were being mean to me, but I think they were actually somewhat right that they, uh, that my problem was that I nuanced everything to death, right? <laughs> and that I just, that some things are much clearer than I think they are. And that sometimes <laughs> I get mucked in some stuff. Anyway, whatever. This is a random person on Twitter and I happened to read their reply. And I got really mad about it. Wait, so I, is that because I feel like sometimes people will call you like, "Oh, Jay's he's like being contrarian." But do yeah, you think? Yeah, but this was not. This a, is different. I, the contrarian thing is not true. Like, I, I actually don't think I'm a contrarian really at all. Like, my politics are actually quite normy compared to, you know, <laughs> well, normy left, right? But that some of the things that I just say are things that other people don't talk about and I don't think that's contrarian, right? Like, I don't think many people really think that. For example, they'll be like, "Oh, you." your criticisms of affirmative action are contrarian. I'm like, no, this is what most people think, right? Like they think <laughs> that the system that was built is corrupt and bad. That's what most people think, right? And a lot of people don't say it, but I'm not being contrarian just saying that. But this part, it made, this tweet made me so angry that I actually thought about it. And I was Why like, did oh, it make you angry? I don't know, because it was correct. You oh, know? oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it, so, to me, it sounds I like a different way of saying like, oh, you're kind of contrarian, like you're picking apart a thing that most people say, and then you're taking the other side. I think it is was pointing to a certain that impulse saying? that is true in terms of a lot of opinion writers where you just yeah. kind of like muddle in something that doesn't need to exactly be muddled in. So I'm willing to concede <laughs> that it might be possible that I'm doing this right now, <laughs> but there is something that is a little bit discomforting to me. I see. Just because look. Okay, here's a hypothetical. Let's say his camp, Mitch McConnell's camp comes out tomorrow and says he is having seizures, mm -hmm. you know, and these are the af after effects of a seizure. We're taking care of it, but he's still mentally sharp. He's still meeting with everybody he needs to meet with. And uh, it's just that this is going to happen, right? And people should not be alarmed. How would, would you change your mind? No, because I think no. part of a, the job of a politician is also making the public believe that you are competent and to have a sort of discourse with them in public, you know, where you can demonstrate that you are there. Do you and, feel like Fetterman? I don't think he's been doing that. Do you think Fetterman is above that line? I, and I think like 
it seems like he's really teetering on that line. And I think, <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. I mean, okay. I think like we'll okay. see in the next election. Like, if I were a Pennsylvanian, I would have. I would have probably have concerns. Okay. So it would folk. It would be, be in your that that question because a lot of people on the left say that question never even crosses their mind because they don't care because it's not Doctor Oz and because Fetterman says a few things. Well, about I mean, Pennsylvania's. Yeah. I mean. Right. If he's, you know, obviously, like, if he's the person, I think most people will vote for him just because it's so dire in Pennsylvania. But, yeah, I mean, I think in those, like, when he was having the stroke, like, right after his stroke, it was, like, somewhat concerning. I think after that, it became more of this discourse around his mental health. Right. Um, Right. And so now I think it's a little bit hard to distinguish, like, if he is in, like, a period of, like, not being healthy, what exactly is going on. Yeah, he's a tough one for me because I do like him a lot, you know, like, in terms of just his way of handling himself and some of the stuff that he says. And I do think that a person like him is probably good for progressive politics in America to have him be up there. And so for him, I just kind of say, well, who cares? You know, <laughs> but then I think that I also then have to say that who cares to Feinstein and yeah. Mitch McConnell, which is my official position right now. It's just like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't care. And I mostly just get mad about it because of Barbara Lee, and I want Barbara Lee to be the senator. But Barbara Lee Trump. is not Dianne Feinstein. Barbara I know, Lee but is... that's why she can't get any traction in this. No, in, it's in because Pelosi is manipulating the situation so that shit no. gets it. <laughs> okay, well, I will say well, anyway, anec- but... anecdotally, talking to a lot of normies <laughs> here in the Bay Area who, by the way, have voted for Barbara Lee their entire lives mm-hmm. because Barbara Lee basically right. runs unopposed. She has been every, in there since like she was a child. Basically. Yeah, no, well, well, for 30 years, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. Since at least 30. Her first vote was the... I thought she was in her 30s 20, when she entered. No, no. Her first vote was the um, was the Afghanistan war. Th- that was like one of her first votes. Really? Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. So I think she's been there for like 30 years or okay. something, 25 years. Um, but she... Uh, we should fact check that, but I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> okay. true. Um, she never, I, first of all, I don't really understand why she's running, you know, because I'm like, well, you represent this area. You'll never lose. We'll always vote for you. And you're sort of a legend forever because you were the one person who voted Mm -hmm. against Afghanistan. Right. And no one will ever take that away from you, nor should they, you know? And then, um, and that was extremely courageous for her to do. And Mm -hmm. I think it really does sort of. I think it does actually show a strength of character that I admire personally. She's every single person I talk to likes Barbara Lee, but they don't want, they don't want Diane Feinstein again. She's like ruined it for them. And so then the other two options are Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, you know, Adam Schiff is not, is not young, right? No, I, But yes. he's, he's just young and not more. I, I do think this stuff is gendered too because of Feinstein. Well, that's what I was going to say. It seems like right. it's more about gender than age with these voters. I, I mean, know. I don't know what their situation is, but. Yeah, it's also, you know, Barbara Lee's a black woman and right. I think that that might be playing into There's it, but I hear yeah. over and over and over and again really? that the problem Jeez. is her age. Yeah. And I think that that's, I, I just think that's an unfortunate side effect of all this stuff look it diane feinstein it's not it's not like she has no culpability in any of this right it's not like somebody it's not like she's sitting around doing great and people just invented a narrative around her for political reasons like obviously she's struggling but i don't know i just i i i just think it's kind of leading us down a wrong road in a lot of ways to talk about things as quickly and to disseminate video you know that is quite alarming 
but to basically then conclude, oh, this person can't serve anymore. Because then I think that on the other shoe, then you have like Barbara Lee with no chance at all of winning California. Maybe she wouldn't have had a chance anyway, you know? But now we have to like choose between Adam Schiff and Katie Porter. For me personally, that's not a tough choice. But I like Barbara Lee a lot better than Katie Porter. I, I mean, I, I guess I don't understand the people who are making that jump. And it seems to me that something else is going on when they look at Feinstein and McConnell and then say, that's why I'm not voting for Barbara Lee. That just makes no sense to me. I don't but know. But I, I think like the piece that I'm taking from you that I think is helpful is like, we, we don't necessarily need to make this about age. Like we should make it about like competence and ability and the ability to like communicate and inspire confidence in your, you know, constituents. Okay. I don't want to make it annoying. <laughs> an annoying slippery slope argument but are there other types of uh competence and fitness like fitness to serve type of distinctions that you would make then like if somebody had like i don't know like ms or some sort of disease then would you would that factor into I, it for you? I think like verbal communication is like probably like 90 percent of your job as a politician <laughs> so right. that's why i'm talking about it so much okay and yeah, yeah I, I mean, like, I think if you had a palsy or you had MS or some, you know, ALS or some condition that like affected your speech, like you could use a speech aid. Like I do think, I don't think, I think like, it's not like just this like technical literal thing. It's like, can you say what you need to say? Mm. Okay. I got it. I will say that I, Barbara Lee has been my representative for the past three years and I can't remember her giving a speech. <laughs> really, I, I've never. I was yeah. gonna say I've never seen her speak live, but I have seen her speak. She, but I just like over the past few years, I, it's just been kind of like, yeah. maybe I just haven't been paying attention to her because all I pay attention to are district attorney recalls or something <laughs> like that. I have heard Chase talk a lot, and Pamela Price, the Oakland DA, is now being recalled, and we'll see how that happens. Oh, We're like about to do the that. same okay. thing. Yeah. I'm gonna try and not write about Damn. it, but I'm sure oh, at some God. point I will. All right, topic two. All right. Oh, yeah. Korean fine dining Korean. is in the New York Times. Pete Wells, I think Pete Wells is a very good restaurant critic. Um, and uh, this is the theme of the show, which is just like me saying, hey, I think this person's pretty good. But Pete Wells basically wrote an article about how Korean, the fine dining scene in New York City, which once mm -hmm. was dominated by the French, right, is now being uh, there's been a revolution of sorts and the Koreans are taking over. <laughs> Isn't it so funny? Yeah. What'd you uh, think about this? I don't, I have a, my whole face was like, you know, the emoji that's like a, that like has, is expressionless and is like a, the mouth is like a, th a straight line. That was my expression the whole time. <laughs> I was like, no mouth. It's just the yeah. two eyeballs. Um, I was laughing because there was a little bit of, um, chatter in our discord where it was kind of like oh like korean food shouldn't really be so like you know fancy and uptight like this and you know i feel like we've talked about that kind of thing on the show before right. about like you know authenticity and like whether a food should be like a home cooking food or like an actual like elevated food or whatever um i i found this article interesting because when i sort of thought that we were after Noma and all of those revelations around the abuses of fine dining that we were kind of like, we're over fine dining now. Yeah. There's not going to be this kind of fine dining anymore. And I'm like, oh, now it's Korean. So it's okay. <laughs> Which I think is kind of funny. And it's, you know, obviously a reflection of massive infusions of Asian and specifically East Asian and Korean wealth into greater New York City. And, you know, having like a, a dining public that's willing to put forth hundreds of dollars to do a kind of food that 
was until very, very recently. Like basically like get like really, really spicy snubutike, eat it in 20 minutes while you're like covered in sweat, you know? Yeah, judging it or something. Have you yeah. gone to any of these places? Like Chungchik, I think no. is one of them, right? Well, that's the other thing I wanted Hang to ask. On. So like I... I think it's like unethical to spend hundreds of dollars on a meal. Me too. Me too. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. I didn't know. I wasn't sure what your position was. I, there's well, no, I don't know if it's unethical. I, I will say that it is. Un- I can't do it. It's on me. I can't do it. I can't I, do it. I if think an entree it is might over twenty nine ninety nine, I get so mad. I like, I'll, <laughs> I just don't go, you know? So what's like, the most expensive meal you've had that you've paid for? That I've paid for? Oh my god, I don't even know. It's probably some sort of like sushi omakase thing that I went to with my wife, you know, where Special it was like a couple kind of hundred bucks. Yeah. But um on the day to day, like there's no meal that I pay for that's not I would say like more than two little dollar signs out of five. <laughs> what does that I mean live, for an entree? <laughs> I, I live between one and a half. <laughs> and two, you know, but it's like I've been I've been thinking about this recently where I was like, I have been exercising all the time. Like I go surfing now once or twice a week. I play tennis three wow. to five times a week and Amazing. I'm not losing any weight. And mm. I was thinking and I was thinking about it. I was like, why am I not losing weight? Are you getting smaller or bigger because of muscles or? Are you- I don't know, but I'm not losing weight. Hmm. And no. Not in any significant way. That's what I tell myself. You're not sometimes. changing shape at so all. I have, yeah, exactly. I've, <laughs> I'm just, I'm building up, but no. And I think it's just because I, you know, I have a few times a week where I find myself in the Taco Bell <laughs> drive-through line. And Jay, it, why? Like, you live in the Bay Area. You could get Taco like Bell. other kinds. And I just, I, I can't actually stop it. I just go all the time, and I think that's part of it. But yes, most of my meals are somewhere between Taco Bell. And, uh, you know, like the cheapest, crappiest sushi <laughs> in Berkeley. But that's, that's, I don't, I used to feel very, a lot of scorn towards fine dining stuff, but I don't really anymore. Um, but the Korean part of it is interesting because what Pete Wells is basically arguing is that like, this is a, these aren't necessary like second generation Koreans, right? Like these are like 1.5 generation Koreans who are coming the over. The people behind the restaurants. Right, right. Yeah, and yeah, they're yeah. starting. It's places. Korean investment. Like, right. It's basically yeah. the people from um, Love Chung After Shik, Divorce, right? right? Like, it's like that type of person. Mm-hmm. Um, Chungshik is where? Is that the one downtown? I can't remember. One of them, that, like my that's parents, the one in the article that is kind of like the progenitor right, right, of right. all of these. Right. One yeah. of them One of them is in Tribeca, and I think my mom went to high school with the owner oh, or something funny. like okay. that. But, yeah, um, no, I've never even, like, yeah. I've never stepped foot in these places. I've never either because I don't. Like I don't, but there's one in San Francisco now and my buddy okay. who's like a very big food person and who has quite a bit of money mm-hmm. and does spend a lot of money on it, not in an excessive way, but occasionally he'll just splurge on a big meal with his wife because his wife really likes this type of thing. Mm-hmm. And he went to the one in Korea, in San Francisco in the Mission District and he said it was the best meal he's ever had. Wow. And I was Amazing. like, he's white or Jewish. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, don't even tell me about it. I don't care, you know. And he was like, no, I have to tell you about this. And he's like, would you ever go? And I was like, no. And then he was like, why? And I was like, it's complicated and it's annoying, but I'm not going to explain it to you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm trying to not like. I was reading this, and the 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 well, one of the first takeaways I had was like basically that I, maybe like this is like a poverty mindset that you and I have that we need to stop, and we should be more supportive of our Korean brothers and sisters here, you know, because like. Uh, it, it is true that like, if somebody's going to make money off of this sort of scammy 
fine dining stuff, that it shouldn't just be like French people. Oh, I'm, I'm happy for them to do it. I just, I guess I just like, this, this sounds really moralizing and it is, but I think, but it's a question that I'm interested in, which is like, if you are a leftist, if you have a sort of beliefs around like the proper distribution of wealth and stuff, like what sorts of luxuries are like, should kind of like be off limits, right? Or are there like, yes, we want to like live with, enjoy, like, you know, Lux Magazine, we had Sarah on, like part of our mission is like socialism. It should be fun, right? People right. should enjoy luxury, luxury for the people, palaces for the people. At the same time, there's something about like spending $500 on a meal, to or me, more. That just seemed, or more. That just seems wrong. Hmm. And I don't, you know, and it is maybe, gluttonous. It is. it is gluttonous. It just seems wrong. Like, I, I don't know. know. I, yeah. But uh, also, I, how is it different than going to a concert that costs $400 or like going well, I don't on do a that vacation? Either. Well, yeah, I know. But like, you know, I mean, those seem more just, you know, I mean, like they seem like you're not eating them. Right. Like it's like right. an, it's a proper art form. So yeah. I don't know if I'm discriminating against food. I don't know if it's something about the stuffiness of fine dining that just makes me angry. Like, yeah, something's going on. with. It. I know. Okay. Well, I'll, let me tell you my critique of it. Yeah, Basically, like, I don't actually think that the stuff is real. You know, like, I, what? <laughs> like, for example, one of these places is called Coat, right? And Coat okay. is, I think, in the 20s or something like that in Manhattan. And it's this high end Korean barbecue place where you can get like Wagyu, be Wagyu beef. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's supposedly all the panchan have, has been like created in a way that's like the best, you know, mm -hmm. I've never oh, yeah. been. I have been invited to go. I've, I haven't, you know, where I wouldn't have had to pay. I haven't gone for the same reason that you have because it's like something about it was like kind of gross to me. Yeah. Where I was just like, if I get Korean barbecue, like I just, first of all, I don't even really like Korean barbecue. But secondly, like I'm just not going to go to the expensive place filled with Wall Street dickheads and pretend like I'm not just like miserable the whole time because I just be miserable. <laughs> right. And yeah. I think that it's, it's, I just don't believe it's better. Like, I don't, I, I feel it, I like they're just like, it's the same shit as like what I talk about with like a uh, performance gear, but that's when I do fall for, right? But like, <laughs> in a follow <laughs> where, up to our yeah, they, episode, they just make up shit and then <laughs> yeah, they say yeah. that they yeah. did it and that, like, oh, the, well, this is like wag. I was, what the fuck is wagyu beef? I don't know what the shit is. <laughs> like, somebody just made it up, it feels like five years ago and it was all over TikTok <laughs> and now it's like 150 bucks a pound and people just buy it. Right. The only thing they it seems to be is there's good. like a lot of fat in it, but it's like, what's the difference between that and veal? You know, like veal is the same fucking thing, right? Um, People can educate me on this and they can like write in the comments or they can tweet at us and, or in Discord yeah, and be like, I Jay know doesn't know anything think. about this, but right. listen, I'm not going to believe you. You know, I'm just going to say that, look, I've, I've had veal before, you know, <laughs> like what's the fucking difference? And then, um, and so I don't believe it's real. Now within Korean cuisine, which I know much better, right, than French cuisine, right, the improvements that one can make on Korean food are considerable, I agree. If you take like Definitely. a slop that you and I ate growing up, that's all 1970s <laughs> hey. post-war food. No, no, I'm serious. You know, like, like, uh, you know, like pulgogi or something like. Like, this is not. I can I I can understand how you can make an elevated uh, jajangmyeon or something like that, right? I think. Oh um, well, yeah, I mean, I feel like we could do take something really elemental like right tubu, like tofu, like but, they're 
the difference between like an incredibly well done like homemade tofu and the kind that you would just buy at a store is like really really it's a huge difference and agreed. it tastes agreed. incredible agreed that's but different does though. that need to cost four hundred dollars like i just don't yeah that's very different there's a place in oakland i forget the name of it but they basically do fresh tubu and they have like weird uh, vegetable, fresh vegetables, like farm to table type of panchan that they sell. Oh, man. It's actually pretty good. I you know, I went there that. and I actually found it to be very fresh and interesting, right? But that doesn't seem like that's what this coat place is. It doesn't seem like what a lot of these places Most are. Most of the stuff is very fusion driven. Right. Maybe it's that's like French fine. techniques with maybe Korean food, or they put like truffles on kaibichim with right. cheese on it. I'm like, that's disgusting. Like, you know? <laughs> It's not disgusting in that I bet it tastes good, but it's like you're going to charge four times as much for this, right? Or they just change the swap out the ingredients and like you just nuked this braised beef rib for 16 hours. I'm sorry. It, like you could have gotten this thing from fucking Walmart and it would taste exact same. What? No, I'm serious. Like what's the difference, I right? Mean, like you just attacked it in a pressure cooker forever so until it fell apart. What's the difference? Yeah, up. what's the difference yeah, yeah. between the fucking Quality. Yeah, that's interesting when you when you cook it at that level. Right. I, is is there any upside to Korean food being the fine dining, having a fine dining presentation like in this world capital city? Like, is I don't like, know. I maybe mean, it's you it's, know, it's, it's like obviously good from a sort of like capitalist branding perspective. It's trendy. The trends change. If you remember, ten years ago, Vietnamese food occupied this spot. Right. You had the slanted in door. fine dining. Yeah, you had like the slanted door. You had all these different types of restaurants where hmm. elevated Vietnamese food was sort of the thing, right? And then it went away. Now it's like Korean food's turn, it seems like. And it, I think it'll have a little bit more staying power because I think Koreans are rich, right? There's and a that, lot of um, money. Yeah. There's a lot of money behind it. And I think that white people tend to really do like Korean food. But I've, I don't know. I just... I'm never, I'll just put it this way. I'm never going to go to any of these places ever. <laughs> and I imagine that for most Korean second gen people like us, you know, like Kyopos mm-hmm. who are raised in America, we feel that way. But I bet like. No, Korea- I, I don't think so. I think I, I, a lot of second gen Koreans really? and second gen Asian Americans and third gen folks will be interested in these places for sure. Really? Yeah, because you it's mean like, like this- banker dudes and like people are like. Or even people who are already like more in our world, like, like who are people? interested in splurging on food because it is this experience of like, oh, wow, I want to see how a cuisine that in general has been treated as a kind of like strip mall fare can get me given this treatment and this level of like respect and time mm. i think i feel like sociologically it would be interesting i just like the money part i just absolutely I will never do and i wouldn't spend that much on any cuisine I know. well tammy but, you and i are yeah. very similar in this we're way. cheap we're cheap but we're also puritanical <laughs> about gluttony where i think I it bothers so. us the same way like I, I will say, like I don't. I'm actually yeah. not proud of this, but like I know it's not very becoming. Are like really, really upsetting to me, you know. <laughs> um, and I'm not okay, talking about. How do you I'm not talking about, about weight like, or anything like that, because you know, like I'm. But it's I, the food consumption specifically, or are you also like you hate people buying an, a dress that costs like a thousand dollars. No, I hate that too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like that. I consider that gluttony. Conspicuous consumption of all kinds. Right, and like this sort of completely constructed narrative around the thing that you're buying about why it's better and how it in, by extension makes you better because you've spent a lot of money on it. Like, right, I just right. like, I find that to be like, I think the people who buy into that are so stupid and it bothers me in a way 
on a personal level where I just don't like like it, it's just it's I'm not actually proud of this it's like a totally visceral thing it's kind of ugly but like, I think it's a, I do think it's a Korean thing <laughs> you know where I it's think like it's, I might it might just be us like I feel, okay okay it might be us I, I, I feel like listeners should write in and be like you guys suck you're judgmental yeah, this is exactly. why these things are actually better you're stupid Jay I, you have no I, taste buds I, like, no it's true I'm so judgmental <laughs> and by the way gluttony is uh, one side of gluttony is going and getting a crunch wrap combo at taco bell three times a week <laughs> and eating it in your van parked on the side of the road i do that all the time you know oh but I, I i and the ethics of the meat that's sourced taco bell right. is not great either right, you know? right, right. but at least it's cheap you know and at least it's democratic but i don't know all right so there's one more part of this i want to talk to and this is uh you know jenny kwok who's the chef and owner of henyo i guess i oh, don't yeah, know I, I, korean one? restaurant in Brooklyn. Yeah. which one is that is that the one on flatbush i think it's in gowanus oh okay because i went I to one remember. on flatbush where the woman who runs it does tiktoks all the time where she like oh. uh but i went to that place and i had the same response i have at every <laughs> single one of these places which is just like i was like I get, I, I understand this for some people. It's just not for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one, I think you and I have talked through many times on the show and we're much better about understanding that that's not fair. Our opinion is not fair. That in fact, we have an impoverished immigrant mindset and that uh, we're being <laughs> like, like, we're being annoying. Authentic, innovation and adventure. Yeah, like, and stuff. We're yeah, being yeah. like annoying, authentic people where we just want to eat, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Ureok. Like that's like the peak of it for us, you know. It's like, oh yeah, I remember, I went, I remember when I went there in 1987 with my mom, and it was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, she said arts, music, and film can make a cuisine wanted. They demystify it, and what she's arguing here is basically that everything that has happened, this huge Korean cultural soft power boom that has happened, has like made Korean dining trendy because you know I don't know, like think about like mm-hmm. fucking Parasite or something, right? Like what what's that dish that they make? That's like what do they make? Like oh, I don't um, even remember what it was. Uh, uh, um, it's a like, mixture of tapagetti and um, yeah, beef. And, uh, the nongshim thing oh geez. right what oh, is gosh. it anyway. anyway it's something right but like yeah. that's like people started making that all over the place in korean restaurants yeah. after that right and yeah. so you have this obviously what happens is you have a culture that every that is ascendant that is all over tv and is the biggest bands in the world and like the food that they eat is going to be what, sorry what do you think about all of that um well Okay, so what I'm interested in is like that Pete Wells is also like very interested in making this connection because there was a, this other line about, oh, Chongshik, it opened the same lo- same year as size Gangnam style. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, that. why are we doing this? But like yeah. clearly like he's interested in making an argument and it was either from the Henya woman and other people or he's like kind of imposing this narrative. No, no. I think there's probably some truth in it that like also through, I would say like dramas are really important. Because in dramas, you're constantly like seeing the consumption of K food. Yeah, but all they eat like is that. Subway. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, man. Oh my god! <laughs> the most I'm commonly dying. eaten. The most There's common. no Korean food. It's all like it's Western all, product. But it is Subway. Oh Subway does do amazing amounts of, of product placement <laughs> in those shows. So good. Um, well, okay. So I think I think there's probably something to it, but I also think it's a little bit related to what you were saying about just like Asian food cycles in the United yeah. States. So I'm not really sure, but, um, but I do feel like this thing about like Korean being 
an upper class culture or like having like an elevated oat thing in the culture is related to the soft power thing. Yeah, that's what I don't like about (laughs) all of this is that I think that there is an effort to make it uh, sort of in a similar way to how Japanese people were seen as being sort of the yeah the elevated and classy and intellectual and interesting Asians for many years during right. your much Well, and that was also like a specific like hegemonic product of like right. they are the empire that is right. appropriate in Asian stuff. But, that yeah. Korea now has beca- taken up this mantle, right? Yeah. And that uh, there is definitely a cultural supremacy thing going yeah. on. It can get that weird. I feel very resistant to. And um, I talked to, I understand this is also, this might also just be the same thing with my Mitch McConnell take where I feel like maybe I'm alone in this <laughs> and maybe I'm just overthinking it. But there is a difference between saying, this is our culture. A lot of people enjoy it. We do a very good job exporting stuff all over the place. And uh, Korean dramas are great. K-pop is great. And this is an ascendant moment for this country economically and culturally, right? There's a difference between that and just being like, oh, we can do everything high culture or whatever. I see. And it really taps into a type of Korean classist mentality that I know you know what I'm talking about, you know, (laughs) where everything is like you just talk to someone and all they do is list off a bunch of names of places that they went to, you know, like like Solde or, you know, like whatever, right? Like uh, Gyeonggi or something like that, right? And that has made it imp- very difficult for me to <laughs> to process this stuff yeah. because I think it's too ingrained in my head that I fucking hate that shit. Yeah, I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, Have you, it, it, is, thing- it feels like culturally supremacist in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I agree with you. I, lo- I think Pete Wells is great. I thought that this argument was like absolutely in some ways true but then also like just so forced about this type of thing like korean food has been in new york city for a long time there have been experiments with high-end korean food for a long long time they had a ura yeah. in fucking soho it was the most disgusting korean restaurant i've ever been to it was like this <laughs> fusiony high concept shit that cost 100 bucks a pop right like they just did it i actually think what's happening is that chongshik was like really popular right and that there are a few of them that are really popular and it's like yeah people bought it they just bought it, yeah. That was, yeah. I mean, and the fact that that was 2011, but now there's like this kind of wave critical mass thing, I think is interesting. And um, he also, May, our producer, sent us this link to the same day that he published this article, like in his little kind of like annotated um, newsletter. He also did a whole like rundown of Korean spots that are affordable, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which yeah. I thought was kind of interesting because I, I was thinking like, oh, I wonder if he would have done that for like, oh, cuisine that's Norwegian or French. Or if he would have just left it. Do you know what I mean? Because I feel oh. like there was almost like a justificatory thing in it. Like, I threw out these Korean Is... places that are too expensive for anybody. Now I'm going to give you the normie ones. Well, I believe that he probably... I, know, enjoy- I bet he enjoys the normie ones. I as, think he as does, a but... He's I not exactly Jonathan Gold, but like he's much more... No, it's He's true. not annoying in that he yeah. only like goes to Aquavit or something like that, right. you know? Um, no, that's true. And he has a mixed Korean family. So I feel like oh, he, does? he probably has had a lot of Korean home cooking. Is he married to a Korean he woman? Is, to my knowledge, his ex-wife is Susan Choi, the novelist. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I love Susan Choi. A little celebrity dish. I know. I love her books. Yeah. She, anyway. I met her a couple so, times and she yeah? was extraordinarily cool. Yeah. 
She just seemed like she was like a normal person, which, you know, when you're talking about people who write books like that, it's very, it's a very rare, it's a very rare thing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anything about her family background or like how connected to Korea they are and stuff, but I'm like, oh, Pete Wells, he probably knows Korean food actually quite well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Hanyo, the place here doesn't actually seem that expensive. It's main course prices top out at $42. Yeah, and it's more like, um, although that's a lot for me, but yeah, but that, it's more like a fusion-y, I think, right? Oh, is it? Yeah. I have no idea. I'm not I don't sure. Know. I, don't I never know. eat Korean food out. <laughs> I know. I, I cook ever. it so much at home that I very rarely go out for it. But I did go to Her Name is Han the other day. Do you know that Oh, place? I love that place. That place is like, to me, like 20 but bucks. That's- that's not fusion-y, though. No, that's like it's not you get at like all. You get junk for like You get like a straight Korean meal. Yeah. Totally yeah. solid. Actually, if I, when yeah. I suggest places for people to go there, I suggest that place. I usually always. go there or in the same, I think the same restaurant group now, Chodankor. That's my like always that? favorite. Is that Chodankor is on 35th Street. Street. It's oh, yeah, I know place. that one. Yeah, yeah, I know that one. Yeah. No, okay. those are the two I go to. Too. Yeah, okay. So we're on the same page. <laughs> I, don't go, I don't go anywhere on 32nd Street at all. You know, because right. her name right. is Han is like over on 31st. Like, on it's like, like 31st and 5th or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not in, it's not yeah. in that one. So I never go to that that one slammed area because it's the food is pretty bad but it's bad for the same reasons that you know these new chefs are saying it's bad like it actually is like 1979 you know yeah yeah it's like messy the street is disgusting like you you can't get in the mood for like a really smell like yeah like uh you smell like smell like kochukaru for the rest of your life all right right or Or the smoke from the carby right right. it's not Um, very good did you say carby oh my god mm -hmm. damn it you gotta Carby. I didn't say Carby. <laughs> yes, I said Carby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Next up, The Retrievals, uh, podcast by oh, yeah. Susan Burton and Serial in the New York Times. Um, it is, uh, I will just say out front here that um, Susan Burton, I like Susan Burton a lot. And I think that this was. Uh, yeah. Did you know her from This American Life? I've never I did. met her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And. Um, I don't know. I thought that this was extremely well written and extremely good. And I will say that, you know, I have very famously criticized Serial in the past, many, many years ago. But there's a way of in which their stuff is impressive to me from a production standpoint that is like very evident in this. You know, like it's very well made. I thought. So, yeah, I was I was gonna ask you that, like this the style question, which is, is there a serial house style? Because I almost feel like there isn't. I mean, each season is so incredibly different. They're by entirely different makers. But you're saying there's something recognizable. So I'm curious, like what that is, since you've done long form oh, podcasting yeah. before. Well, is, I mean, I worked there for a little bit for those. I mean, I don't know. Maybe oh, you did on, at serial. No, at this American. Oh yeah, life. yeah, at this yeah. American Life, right, right. Okay. And one of the things that I don't, I don't feel like I'm talking out of class here, but you know, mm-hmm. I was brought in to help edit pieces. And what you do is you go in this room, and the person, the producer of the segment, who's usually also the person voicing it, mm-hmm. has a giant script in front of them on a piece of paper, and they have all this sound, all this tape queued up, right? Okay. And so they read their script. And then they play the tape at the appropriate time. Oh, it's not edited and spliced later? No, it is. But I'm telling you, this is oh. how you edit it, right? 
So they write the script. Oh, 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 I see. And they go through the whole thing. Let's say it's like a 26 minute piece. They go through the whole 26 minutes. There's like six or seven people sitting around a table the entire who are all helping with the edit. Mm -hmm. And what they do, and this took me a while to get used to, is that you have a piece of paper in front of you and a pen. And you write down every single word that they say as they say it. You're transcribing by hand the entire fucking thing, right? Now, why do they? Why? Why would somebody do this? Now, I I asked the question obviously, and the answer was that there is a sense, and I think this was Iris doing or his belief that generally, if you write it down, you pay much more attention to it, and that you can refer back to it, and that you think through it a lot more and much more efficiently. And if you don't, then you'll zone out, right? Okay. And I actually wow. found that that was true. Really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it was like amazing because at first I was like, this is so stupid. This is some affectation, you know. But then I was like, holy shit, it worked. And you do that edit process like six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. And so that every word on that show and by extension serial has been poured over by everyone who works there at least once. You know, it is very similar to the myths of The New Yorker where like they would have a manuscript in the hall and people would walk by with a pencil and Mr. Sean would walk by and they would say, well, what about this? They'd put little notes on. Wait, so does that mean, okay, so so that person finishes reading the 26 minute script, the six people who have also have scribbled everything down, then do you all get in a room and they give comments from- We're already in a room and we all, and everybody talks. At the, as it's happening? At the end. Right, at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, and, and so it, that's the process for giving notes, like, after. Yeah. Wow, that's... It's that's the most crazy. intensive edit process I've ever seen in my <laughs> entire so life. Incredible. No, I'm serious. Like, you know, and I've been to wherever. I've worked everywhere, you know? I had and no nothing idea. nothing is even close. Nothing's close, you know? There's... Now, look, there are some documentary filmmakers who will do something quite similar, but not really to that extent where you have, like, a committee that is always looking over it. And as a result, uh, and this goes to everything all the way down the line. It used to, you know, the music mix with the, with the, with the VO, you know, the sound quality of everything, right? Like it is all discussed at that level. Wild. And so there is a polish to this thing that I I just wanted to start out and say that I thought was like quite, quite, quite impressive. (laughs) Okay, I had no idea that was so well. (laughs) It is really made well. It's very, um, it's almost too smooth at parts for me, but yeah, it's like incredibly admirable. I thought there's like an efficiency to the way they do this stuff that is like wild to me because you could have made this in any number of forms this story right okay well why do you want to why did why did you want me to listen to this i wanted to talk about this podcast because well for the craft reasons we just discussed but i just think this is the first maybe in a really long time the most kind of thoughtful and long treatment of like pain and women's pain that i've sort of ever experienced in pop culture do you want to just tell them what? The, yeah, oh, yeah, right. We haven't even said yet. what this is about. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there was a little chatter about this in our Discord, but the Retrievals is a five-hour podcast about oh, five um, episode, yeah, five that, episode yeah. podcast about something that happened in, at the Yale Fertility Clinic in in and around New Haven, Connecticut, where a nurse who was addicted to opioids was stealing fentanyl that was supposed to be given to patients that were having eggs removed from them and replacing it with saline. So 
upwards of hundreds of women, 200, possibly more, according to the patients, um, had incredibly painful procedures. Like we're talking about eggs being ripped out of you um, over and over again with salt water in their systems instead of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that that is described and then analyzed and these questions of like, well, why didn't anyone catch this, even though women were screaming that this is the most painful thing they would ever experience in their lives? And in such a delicate moment of these women really wanting to have children. I mean, there were so many complex emotions and such a, a very like skillful dissection of the doubt, the self-doubt, the harm done to women on a regular basis in the medical system. I just thought it was that part of it was so brilliant. Uh-huh. And there's also really complicated questions, which I know you're interested in, around the criminal legal system right. and what it is we want to get out of that, especially if we're like professed progressives, but we're go- we're the victims of a crime like this. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it we want that would like make us feel like justice has been achieved? So it it's really wide ranging, you know, and it uses this like a case that kind of seems like open and shut to to do a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's fair just to catch people up completely because I don't think there's any spoilers in this one right it's basically a nurse named Donna she was going through a divorce and she she said it was stressful on her and that one of her method of coping was to steal fentanyl out of Mm -hmm. these little vials and replace it with salt water so that these women at the Yale fertility clinic were going into their procedures with no anesthetic Mm -hmm. at all and that she got caught it seems like she kind of wanted to get caught she confesses and then she's sentenced to four weekends in jail, like alternate weekends, and that she is only sentenced to this because she is going through a custody battle with what does seem to be a pretty terrible ex-husband. Abusive. And she feel, and the judge feels like she should not interrupt this family court proceeding for this, um, and that. Right, because she could right. lose custody of the children she if she were put away. Of the children, right, and so yeah. um, the show is like about two things i i agree i think it's about two things the first is about why don't people believe women in terms when it comes to pain because Mm -hmm. how could you you have all these women basically being like this most painful thing ever and all the doctors are like well that's interesting shouldn't be you know (laughs) we gave you three fentanyl (laughs) yeah exactly and then the second part is like well what do you do like what is a proper restitution on any of this Mm -hmm. what like what did you like why do you think it's so difficult like this is not a topic that's new. A yeah. lot of people write books about this. It's like true. I think Porches yeah. Kapoor wrote a book about this, totally. right? Like there's yeah. a my one of my friends, Sarah Ramey, wrote a book about this as well. Like sort of the mysterious disease type of thing, right? Question that seems yes. somewhat related here, which is just like, why don't people believe us, right? Why don't people believe us? Um, I don't know. Like why? It's like it seems like that type of stuff exists and yet like there's no resolution to any of this type of stuff. Right. Like it just continues to happen. So like, what what did you get out of that? Well, I thought, yeah, I mean, I, that question I think is a very hard one. I mean, you know, obviously like the answer is the patriarchy, whatever, that's very easy, but you know, but no, I mean the, the, like a more thoughtful answer, I think it's really, really hard. I think in this instance, it's so, um, it's so sort of perfectly crystallized around what is supposed to be a moment where women are, should have pain like the whole thing about like reproduction is like oh well that's like the big sacrifice you make for your body to you know for your children and so it's actually appropriate to feel pain and so it's almost like they had the women in the worst situation where their pain would be the most disbelieved right you know and like the women themselves kind of felt like 
pain was almost a rite of passage in some ways for this procedure. Um, there's this incredible, one of my favorite moments in the podcast, I'm curious what you thought about this, is when there's that support group on Zoom. Oh, yeah. So, so during the pandemic, like because the for going through fertility is so emotional and painful, and you also like a lot of these women's never had a child. We should say like it's this is like very tortured and tortuous and difficult process. But um, these women were in a support group with each other, and some of the women who had not been given the fentanyl because of Donna's theft told the other women in the support group, "Well, you have to get ready because this is really, really going to hurt." Right. And then because they had prepared the women for a level of pain that it was extraordinary, even though they weren't really supposed to pay, feel that much pain at all, then those women thought it was okay on some level too. So they were also doubting themselves. I just think like that loop of, you know, feeling, yeah, just like not trusting your body, not trusting that you, you will be believed in the medical establishment is so familiar. I mean, I've never been through anything even close to this, but um, despite the proliferation of those sorts of books, like it's still like a fairly hush hush thing. I don't think like I even talk about it with my friends. Um, so I think having something like this out there f to spur these sorts of discussions is very useful. And it seems like it's been a very popular podcast, but I don't know. What do you think? And I mean, I don't want you to have to like say anything about your wife if you don't want to, but I, I also feel like I wonder if as a parent, like, and as somebody who is with a lot of other parents, like these sorts of conversations come up. Yeah, I think that uh, there's, I never feel more fortunate than, you know, that for my family, there's, you know, not trouble either with the health of the kids or with, you know, the conception of the children because mm -hmm. yeah, thank goodness. my people, the people I know who have gone through that, they describe it at a level of stress that I don't, that would be quite excruciating, I think for me. And these are happy stories, right? Like, um, yeah. There's, a lot of, there's just a lot of self-question and I don't think it's, yeah. I think it's probably, I think the women bear the absolute brunt of it, right? Um, even, uh, I don't think it's easy on men, but I think that mm -hmm. there's much more pain that is felt in a lot of the, a lot of the podcasts, there's a lot of narratives about like what it feels like for women to have to go through this, not the pain of it, but just even saying, well, why aren't I good enough? And like, there's yeah, people are very exactly. candid about stuff like, you know, with Donna, Donna has two kids and they're just kind of like, she did this to me and she has two, totally. she got to have two kids. And I was just like, I have two kids, you know, and I was just like, like it, 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 it is actually quite eye opening in a way that I should, probably shouldn't admit because it should be obvious. But that part no, was like, I was just like, whoa, you know, like these women want cutting. children yeah. so bad <laughs> that yeah. they're like kind of ugly about it at times, you totally. know, but like not in a yeah. way that I don't understand, but like, you know, like that's like an ugly thought. But they were like, you Donna, know? you have what I want. Right, I right. I would kill to have what you want, <laughs> right. what you have, and you've right. taken everything from me. And, like, and, and then it turns out Donna also had, was like her, she had also been through IVF and everything right. like that. And then that's yeah. when they got really mad. Yeah. You know? Which, <laughs> Which actually I was kind of interesting and strange to me that that right. was a turning point for them, right. but it was. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I, maybe that was like they needed a twist or something like that. Cause I was maybe. like, well, that's not so much of a twist, but the the second part of this that I found really interesting that I want to talk to you about a bit was that um, like what to do about this. Yeah. Right. And I found myself really sort of torn up about it because obviously like, I feel like this woman, Donna had a drug problem, right? Nobody died from this, mm -hmm. right? Procedure. In fact, they had the same procedure. They just felt more pain, right? Yeah. That is bad. Like the amount of pain they describe, like I, like it seems horrific. Right. 
And, and some people had fewer procedures because of it, which then could right. mean that they had less likelihood of conceiving. Of conceiving, but, right. And yeah. Or that they're scarred from it right. in a way that is going to be long-lasting, which I also Definitely. believe. But the most Absolutely. fascinating person to me was this woman, Leah, yes. who is a American Studies professor, professor lecturer at Yale. Frankie, what are yeah. you doing? Um, hey, Frankie. Say hi to we have a little visitor. Hi, Hello. Oh. We're doing, um, uh, <laughs> what? uh, we're doing, um, finger paints with Anzi with like all of these different paints. Oh my God. Who, <laughs> you, I, what, you, okay. What, and what, you want me to come up and see it? Yeah. Okay. But you have to wait until I'm done. Okay. I'll come up afterwards. Aww. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> bye Frank. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, Frank, be careful going out. Um, Oh, okay. So the most interesting character was this woman, Leah, who is a lecturer at Yale, and she teaches American studies, and um, I think she's Iranian, uh, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And she, uh, she's very, very conflicted about what should be <laughs> done. Cause, and I, I found it really interesting because she was basically like, well, I get why I should be lenient, and all my politics are like, she should, I should be lenient. Yeah. But like, I'm really mad. <laughs> yeah. What did, what did you think about her? She, I totally found her fascinating too. And I was annoyed by her because I, I I'm sure you had a similar reaction. I was like, oh, you're, you're fake. Yeah. Like you're saying you believe in abolition and all these liberal principles, but actually you kind of suck. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you want, the, do you want this woman to lose her two children? I right. mean, what, you know, what is the consequence? Um, at the same time, it seemed like it was, I think, Susan, the the podcast maker, presented it in this really good way, where it was like, then you think as a listener, well, that's how much pain she was in. Yeah. It's a it's a pain where like her principles actually totally break down. Um, I was fascinated by a couple other people who were very like principled in their right. anti criminal punishment. There was a there was a public defender, right? Yeah, the public defender was like basically was just like amazing. open and shut case. She was like, yeah, I don't believe in. Uh, I don't. I suffered a lot, but I don't believe in that drug offenses should be carry jail time. Yeah. And therefore, uh, I want you to be lenient to this woman. Totally. Or was that the addiction it. specialist? There was like two There's or three. Two of them. Of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Like so, like one addiction health person and one um, public defender, and I was like. I thought they were so incredible. Like, I definitely am not worthy. I think my principles would probably be shook by this also. Mm. And I would be like, four weekends. What the fuck? You know, <laughs> yeah, four they weekends were... does sound crazy. <laughs> and I would like have like a carceral sign up, like jail, jail. I don't yeah. know. Like, yeah. I don't fucking know. I think I would Defund be so the police, angry. But... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think I saw some of myself in Leah, you know, like, oh, I'm like, oh, I would probably be like that. Like, I don't know. I've never been in that much pain. Right. Like, maybe it's I would be so angry either. I would be blind. It's not just the pain. It's not it just the pain. The, it's everything. The trauma. I want the... a child more than anything in the world. Right. right. And I was willing to endure this process. And yeah. you stole both from me. Yeah. I think is an understandable outcome to that thinking. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think it's understandable that you would conclude that. And you might even be right. Um, I felt, you know, and this is maybe me being a bit of a chauvinist, that given the fact that two people seem to have no problem with sort of doing, standing by their principles, mm -hmm. that I found it a bit disappointing that this 
woman who does bring up abolition and all this sort of stuff <laughs> would, Left-wing would regress. And yet at the same time, you're right. Um, I don't know. Like, it's just, man, it's kind of intense where, you know, somebody <laughs> yeah. stole your medication and what? Okay. So this is something that people who haven't listened to the podcast don't know. Dada was like the attending nurse for a lot of these women. Oh, and so God. they would be lying on the fucking gurney screaming in pain mm-hmm. And the doctor would be like, you're okay. And Donna would be standing there knowing that she had my hand. Yeah. Knowing that she had swapped out their pain medication. I cannot. And and just kind of being like, yo, (laughs) it's gonna be okay. It's like, that's like I would be livid at that person. I'd be just like, what is wrong with you? And would you ever go to the doctor again for anything? I mean, that's the other thing. I just feel like, are these women gonna not do any preventative care in the future. You know what I mean? Like I already hate going to the doctor yeah. for anything. And I, I think having an experience like this, like I wonder if it'll be detrimental to their future health just generally. You know? I know. Well, I'm on the borderline of that. We don't even have to talk about it, but you know, I, I <laughs> tend to avoid the doctor and uh, I avoid all surgeries. Um, even though I have many torn ligaments and stuff, just because like, I just don't trust these motherfuckers. I'm sure your sister loves this. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, if I had a serious, <laughs> serious thing that I needed surgery for, I would do it. But like, yeah. you know, like, yeah, yeah. I have a torn ACL and like a torn labrum, everything, and I've never gotten surgery for it, and it's okay. That you know, serious. Uh, physical therapy is good, but most good surgeons will also tell you just gets physical to do physical therapy. You know, and then there's some people who are very cut happy, which is unfortunate. But um, I don't know. I don't think so. I think that they're. I what okay let's talk about the Yale of everything because yes, that's, that's okay. the other part of it and I think Susan does a wonderful job with this because like yeah. the Yale Fertility Clinic this is not a story about even though I think that she does a good job with like representing the different people who are there mm-hmm. like there were these stories that were coming out last year about doc, uh, about like hospitals for example like uh, one of them was in I think Brownsville right where mm-hmm. like this type of thing was so rampant and black women were just dying, you know? Um, and then there was a times ran this amazing story about this woman who was basically administered her epidural in the wrong place. That's what I was going to say. And yeah. she died. Right. Um, and that like yeah. everything that she said for hours and hours and hours just ignored, you know? Totally. Yeah. The maternal mat- mortality stuff is Right. And look, this is clearly racialized in a big way, in a way that I think anybody with a brain can figure out why, you know, because a lot of very few of the doctors are black. And also it's like, you know, like black women just aren't believed in society in the same way that white women are. And there was one black character in the retreat. Right, 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 right. Um, So but this is not one of these places where it's like a nightmare place. This is one of the highest places. And yet. Oh my god! I felt like that was also kind of the reason why nobody <laughs> listened totally. to anybody. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And we, it's almost like we should have started with. I mean, that's I think what you were saying about Susan handling the story. That's like a tough thing about the story. Like you have to go in with the Donna piece because that's like what makes it this yeah. true crimey, interesting thing. But it's really about how the Yale Fertility Clinic is using basically standards from the 1970s. Doesn't care about anyone. Is just like a money making machine. Right. You know, and is selling the Yale name to like bring in all these people. I mean, it's really disgusting, and it they got off very easy. I know, I know. It was it, like because one of the the public defender, I think, and the addiction special were both like, we want to hold Yale accountable for this, right? Which I think is correct. Yes. Um, 
But that was where I felt disappointed in the Leia character, where I was just like, I understand you're mad, right. but you're the fixation. Like on, you're yeah, wrong. Okay. You're wrong to be who's to be mad at. Like this woman is like yeah. clearly something's wrong, and just you know, like, but um, send what is sending her to jail and separating her from her kids going to do for you? You know, right. like um, uh, did you did you feel like do you feel like these types of things are useful? or effective i i found it very effective in understanding um the extent to which this happens as like a dude you know um where i feel like definitely any pain that i feel is probably taken very seriously and i understand that especially when wrapped up in maternity stuff like you said at the beginning where there's Mm -hmm. an expectation of pain where they say oh well this is the natural birth process Right. And people have done it. It's nature to feel the pain. Like that's definitely wrapped up in all of this. So yeah, yeah. What, what did you think it was? Yeah, I think it I think it was helpful um because I'm not a person who has ever been pregnant or wanted a child or gone through this process. I think it helped me empathize with a lot of my friends who've been doing IVF or just like doing, you know, um just getting pregnant and or you know, having kids in different kinds of ways and like the I think that desire is very mysterious to me. I know. <laughs> like that you're, overwhelming you're the desire. the only person like, I know like that where I, you know, it's it weird. is I, Yeah, it was just like, I don't get like wanting well, to only, have a kid. not only, but one kid. of a small handful. Yeah, yeah like yeah. wanting to, I mean, I get, I sort of like abstractly understand wanting to have a child. Like I, right. like Frankie just walked in. Like, I think Frankie's like so adorable and wonderful and like, that's right. like so fun. But yeah, but like the, I feel like the women on this show, Susan did a good job of capturing like how intense this desire was to have a child it was more intense than almost anything else in their life right right they were so um so focused on that thing and i i yeah i think like obviously because that's not me it's still very hard to understand but i think this thing got maybe the closest to it that i've ever heard (laughs) yeah i i I get i i thought that it was very brave of the women to talk about it in those terms because it's not a it's like, especially the ones who are more career oriented and a little bit older. Yeah. You know, it's a hard yeah. thing, I think, to admit that you want to have a kid extremely badly. Yeah. And that you're willing to put all this stuff on hold to do it. And that um, it almost feels, especially given the success of some of these people or how successful they were. That it's a moment right. of vulnerability because you're right. failing yeah. at this thing that like every 15 year old seems to be able to do, even if they don't want to, you know, exactly. And that's part of what the anger I think is from, right? It was right. just like, why can't, why isn't this easy for me? You know, yeah. like, and what, what, like, what did I do wrong? I'm sure there's a lot of guilt around it, but totally. Um, I don't know. I thought it was good. I'm glad that I listened to it because, uh, I don't know. It's good to like understand and empathize with people. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Is there, I was wondering if there was a male equivalent to that thing of, oh, well, that's supposed to hurt. So just like deal with it. That's like no, in the nature of this experience. No, no. Men, look, as an avid watcher of survival television, <laughs> male pain tolerance is pathetic. <laughs> it really is. It's like, Men just are like, they just can't tolerate any pain, period. You know, and it's just, I don't think that this is like even like a up with women type of thing. And maybe it's bad that women are much better at pain tolerance. Yeah, you know? in but a way like, it is. Like, <laughs> men, anything that hurts, you're immediately at the doctor and they're doing 15 MRIs on you. <laughs> 
there's no mysterious male pain. I mean, which you know? is so interesting because it's like, oh, men, like they always grin and bear it, you know? No, they don't. Right. They don't. But, yeah. You know, the one thing I would say that is probably painful for a lot of dudes that seems like, you know, would engender some sort of negative response is balding, you know? Mm. But I don't know. I've never had a problem. It's with a different balding. kind of pain. Yeah. And it's not like, <laughs> why can't I have a child? What's wrong with my body? It's like, oh, I'm balding. Like everybody, you know, like 40% of everybody else, like, you know, it's fine. Yeah. But uh, no, no, no. I don't like, maybe I'm missing something, but as a 43 year old active man who has a variety of ailments at all time, I'll just say that like, it's generally like everything is has a name to it and everything is taken very seriously and you know they'll rule like if you have a pain in your foot they'll like do all the tests to rule out that you don't have fucking colon cancer you know so (laughs) gotcha i don't think it's similar must be nice it is nice (laughs) the patriarchy um all right well thank you for listening to this is there anything else you want to say about this tammy no that's great okay yeah good job to Susan Burton. Yeah, congrats on the team. You know, it's very hard. Like it's especially for something like this where it's like you know that people are going to get mad about it, you know? And I actually thought that like if I was there, not there, but if I was thinking about it, I would I the question of whether or not doing it at Yale and mm. highlighting a bunch of rich white women. Yeah was like appropriate given that the bulk of this problem or the most egregious of these issues mostly take place with black women, you know, um, in a way it's that true, is yeah. so demonstrably clear that any idiot, the, if you don't believe that you think it's some woke stuff, like you're just a fucking idiot, you know, there's a million <laughs> investigations. There's so much empirical every, research on that. Like, every not single even... study concludes the yeah. same way, you know, I haven't. Yeah. But that is that usually around like more maternal mortality and not IVF stuff or no, I think it's everything. It's every, all yeah. that whole pro, that whole pipeline. And like yeah. any yeah. medical issue. Gotcha. You know? gotcha. And so, yeah. no, um, I think that's a good, yeah, I think that's a real question. Anytime you have like an IV league thing, like what are yeah. we doing here? But I'm but glad she just went. It kind of makes sense in this situation. You have to do this. Sto- you have to do the story. That's exciting. You yeah. know, like, and um, you can do it in a way that is like, you know, fair and i think i don't know i think it did but that would be the one question yeah, that yeah. i had about it okay anyway thank you for listening to the show once again if you'd like to subscribe to our show then you can get access to our discord it's five dollars a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsg pod thank you to our producer may shots um as always and uh tammy 196 episodes Woo, congrats that's fucking crazy that's crazy i feel like we've done like 50 <laughs> i think I that's know, a positive right? you know it's like yeah not endless, it's still so. interesting yeah all right okay all i'll right, talk to you, you later. next week <laughs>